It's been almost four years since Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke shot Laquan McDonald. Today, he goes on trial for murder. A coalition of activist groups plans to be outside the courthouse every single day of the trial. One of the organizers is Will Calloway, the man who helped get the McDonald dashcam video released to the public. It's important that we have observers inside the courtroom, but it's also important to us that the community and the city and the nation, um, the world, at that point, see us out here demanding justice for Laquan. So it's important to us that we occupy this space and that it's going to continue to build by the thousands over the weeks to come. They've got a permit, and they say they plan to occupy the whole block across the street from the courthouse. And they say they'll set up screens to allow people to watch the trial, to see how this whole thing finally plays out. From WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune, this is 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. I'm Jen White. Over the last four episodes, we've talked about the many ways the Laquan McDonald shooting has shaped the city of Chicago. An ousted police superintendent, sweeping reforms in the police department. And just yesterday, we brought you news of Chicago's mayor deciding not to run for another term as the trial begins. Now we want to zoom in and break down what to expect in the courtroom. Chip Mitchell is a WBEZ reporter who's covered this case since Officer Van Dyke was charged almost three years ago. He's going to walk us through the main players in the Van Dyke courtroom battle, the judge, the prosecutor, and the defense attorney. So, Chip, first, jury selection starts today. What are we expecting? Jen, the jury will have 12 members. They're supposed to be impartial and reach a verdict based on the evidence at trial, not stuff they've heard in the media. Now, this case has had a lot of publicity. So the judge is beginning jury selection today with a pool of, we're told, 200 people. That's much bigger than a typical murder trial. So they'll start today by filling out questionnaires, these written forms that the two sides have come up with. And eventually, the attorneys will question the potential jurors face-to-face, and then they'll take turns eliminating people until they get down to the 12 jurors plus some alternates. But Jen, all of that could take several days, so we don't expect to get to the attorneys' opening statements until next week. Okay, let's talk about the main courtroom players, starting with the judge, Vincent Gaughan. Yeah, Jen, he's 77 years old. He grew up in an Irish family on Chicago's north side. He served three tours of duty in Vietnam. And then he became a lawyer. And this is what's unusual. He spent nearly two decades as a public defender and an attorney assigned to low-income defendants. Most judges in that building are former prosecutors. Now, Judge Gahn has been on the Cook County bench since 1991, and he's overseen some high-profile cases. There was the child pornography trial of singer R. Kelly. There was this big massacre at a suburban restaurant called Brown's Chicken, a couple murder defendants in that one. That's another one of his cases. You've spent a lot of time in his courtroom over the last three years. What's he been like? Well, Judge Gahn... He gets a lot of praise for being fair and for being prepared for trying to call balls and strikes according to the law. And I think we've basically seen that so far in the Van Dyke case. But Jen, Judge Gahn's temperament, I would say, is very erratic. I've actually never seen a judge berate attorneys like he does. And there's something else about him. In big cases like Officer Van Dyke's, Judge Gahn is secretive. He seals a lot of court filings. He calls the attorneys back to his chambers without a court reporter. He holds hearings behind closed doors. This past May, news outlets, including WBEZ and the Chicago Tribune, 
they successfully petitioned the Illinois Supreme Court for an order that required Judge Gahn to make the case's documents more accessible to the public. What do we know about why he takes that approach to cases? Well, what he says is he wants the process to be fair. You know, his ultimate concern, he says, is the defendant's right to a fair trial. And all of these steps, he says, are to protect that right. Over the next few days, we're going to hear more about Gon's role in this case. But Chip, there's a story about the judge from back when he was in law school. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's a story based on a Chicago Tribune report back in 1970. Stacey St. Clair is a Tribune reporter, and she dug it out of the newspaper's archive for a story she wrote about the judge. So Vincent Gon comes back from the war, and he enrolls in law school. And his, his father later tells a Tribune reporter that you know, Vincent seemed very nervous when he got home. And then in April of uh, 1970, he got in a so car. So he's almost 29 then. Yeah, he's almost he's he's almost 29. I think he's 28 at the time when when this happens. He's living with his parents in his childhood home in in Lincoln Park, which is on the north side. And he gets into a, a fender bender one day, and um, his father tells us a Tribune reporter that he became very agitated after the accident, and that he got into an altercation with the other driver. And when he came home from the accident, he was very upset that day. Uh, he went up to his bedroom on the third floor of the house and, and locked himself in for the rest of the night. And about 3 a.m., uh, Vincent Gone takes an M1 rifle and shoots out his bedroom window into the bedroom of his neighbors right above their bed and shooting into the wall. He fires two shots. What happens? The neighbors call the police, and two police officers show up. They are in the dining room of, of the neighbor's home when two more shots come firing into the house from Vincent Gone, fired into the dining room, narrowly missing um, one of the police officers, according to the Chicago Tribune story at the time. So he's fired four shots and almost hit, what, four people? Yes. So what do they do with him? So he's still locked up in the bedroom. He's still up in his bedroom. More than a dozen police officers show up on the scene. They surround the house with their guns drawn. Vincent Gon's father is outside, very worried about his son. And they're making plans to get him out of the house when, when Vincent Gon calls down and he asks to speak with a priest. Any priest? One from DePaul University where he was in law school. And the police sort of hesitated at first. They weren't sure if they wanted to send the the priest into the home because they didn't know what kind of danger it posed. And he said, no, you know, it'll be okay. Um, I know him. He won't hurt me. He just wants to talk. So as the priest was headed up the stairs, Vincent Gone yelled down the stairs again and said, you know what, bring a police officer too, an Irish sergeant. And that sort of made everybody laugh because, you know what, mm. finding an Irish sergeant then or now on the Chicago Police Department was not a very hard <laughs> right. a hard task. So that sort of broke the tension and, and the police officers laugh and they put their guns down and the entire scenario is resolved peacefully with the sergeant and the priest and gone talking for a while up in his bedroom. And then gone has put the rifle down at, at this point and... The three of them talk for a while, and then uh, Gon leaves the home with his priest, and he and the priest get into a police vehicle and, you know, presumably head down to the police station, according to the article. And another police officer goes up to Judge Gon's father and says, 
yeah, I'll take you in my squad car to the police station to your son. So it, it all resolved hmm. without anyone being harmed. Uh, Vincent Gaughan does get a bunch of charges sort of thrown out at him, including um, aggravated assault and unlawful use of a weapon. So 48 years later, the same mm-hmm. Vincent Gaughan is about to preside over the murder trial of a police officer who arrived on a scene and unloaded his gun within seconds, mm-hmm. about 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. So, Stacy, um, did you get a chance to talk with Judge Gaughan to see how that experience he had with the police as a young man, what it means to him now? I, I did speak with Judge Gaughan, and I, and I told him that I would be reporting on, on this incident, and, and it would be coming back up into the sort of the public conscience. And he said he understood, but he didn't speak about that incident publicly. What, what happened to those criminal charges against him? The circuit clerk's office says they have no record of the case ever being adjudicated, and the Chicago Police Department also has no record of the arrests being made. So all we have is the story um, in the Tribune archives from 1970 to sort of explain what happened that night. Do you think that Judge Gaughan, this experience is part of him. Mm -hmm. Do, Do you think he relates more to Jason Van Dyke, the police officer in this case, or to Laquan McDonald? It has to be a little bit of both, right? I mean, he understands what it's like to, I'm assuming, regret firing a gun at somebody on a bad night. But I think he also knows that he's lucky he wasn't killed or seriously wounded by police officers who had drawn their guns that night. So I don't know how he can't see a little bit of Van Dyke and a little bit of Laquan in his own story. So that story was first reported in 1970 by the Chicago Tribune's Bill Mullen. He was an overnight reporter covering the city's police department. He went on to win three Pulitzer Prizes, and he's retired now. Next, we're going to turn to the key attorneys in the Van Dyke trial. One of them has also shot his gun at someone, an experience he says will shape the way he argues the case. That's next. Now, more than ever, facts matter. That's why the journalists at the Chicago Tribune are committed to quality journalism, relentlessly pursuing the truth and providing you with the stories that impact your community, as well as your daily life. Get fact-based journalism and support the future of investigative reporting, like 16 Shots, by subscribing to the Chicago Tribune today. Visit chicagotribune.com slash 16shots for a special subscription offer just for listeners of this podcast. If there is a lawyer in Chicago who knows about defending cops, it's Dan Herbert. He spent years as in-house counsel at the union for 10,000 of the city's police officers. Now he's in private practice. He takes on a lot of cases of officers accused of wrongdoing, and he's representing Jason Van Dyke. Chip, before he started his career as a lawyer, Herbert was a Chicago cop himself for nine years. And like Judge Gaughan, he has fired a gun at someone. Tell us what happened. Yeah, it was January of 95. He told me the story when I sat down with him at his office a few days ago. It goes like this. Herbert and his partner, they were out on patrol on the city's north side. He says it was snowy and dark, and they get this radio dispatch. Home invasion in progress. The offender had just carjacked somebody. The guy pulls out a gun, and he points it at us and starts driving his car at us. Uh, Me and my partner fire. The guy's tire gets flattened from one of our gunshots. And Herbert says this guy tries to get away. It turns into a wild chase. We're going over the air, telling 
everyone what we have. You know, shots fired by the police. Uh, uh, we got a man with a gun. Uh, he pulled the gun on us, pointed the gun at us. Everyone's talking over each other. There was another unit that was further north. I actually was running alongside the guy in the car because his car was going so slow because flat tire and it was snowy out. And I was reaching into the car trying to get, trying to turn the car off. And I was punching the guy with my left hand and trying to turn the car off. So I had my gun put away at this point. He ends up gaining some speed and he ends up crashing into a, um, like a bust up shelter. We show up seconds later. There's another unit on the scene. This guy jumps out of the car with the gun, points it at us, and we I think we all opened fire, four of us. So Herbert says he shot twice that night, and he says it was the only time he opened fire in his whole police career. And like Van Dyke, he says he was just doing his job. I don't remember once thinking about what I was supposed to do. Any thought process before I fired, it was boom, boom. You know, I fired because, wow, this is what I've been training for. It's not necessarily a cognitive process. It is much more of a reaction. A good analogy is if you're driving down the highway and somebody in the lane next to you just suddenly cuts in front of you, you don't think about, boy, I better turn to my right and get out of this person's way. You just react, and that's based upon your experience, and it's based upon your training and driving. It's the same type of thing. And what happened to the man he fired at? Well, Herbert says he survived and went to prison, although it's really hard to find records about what happened to him. You know, in listening to Herbert tell that story, I'm wondering about the defense strategy he's going to provide for Van Dyke. Are we going to hear this kind of you don't think you react argument? Yeah, and he actually said that this is going to be a big part of his trial strategy. So what we're expecting prosecutors to say is that shooting someone in a situation like what Van Dyke faced was not what the officer was trained to do. Okay, so the next courtroom character is Joseph McMahon, the prosecutor. Tell us about him. Yeah, he's actually a special prosecutor. That's what they call him. He was brought in after civil rights advocates pushed for the Cook County state's attorney to be pulled from the case because of her ties to the police. She eventually did withdraw her office and Judge Gahn appointed McMahon. Please raise your right hand, state your name. I, Joseph H. McMahon, have been duly appointed special prosecutor. Have been duly appointed special prosecutor. Do solemnly swear. So the thing about him is he's state's attorney of Kane County, and that's about an hour west of Chicago. Some civil rights groups were unhappy with the choice. I think part of the concern was that he was a white guy from the suburbs and people had questions about how hard he'd push this case. You know, Chip, when we look at the track record of convicting officers for on-duty shootings nationally, is there a reason to be skeptical? There is, Jen. There's a criminologist at Bowling Green State University. His name's Phil Stinson. He's tracked thousands of on-duty shootings by local and state police officers since 2005. Only six of those cases have led to convictions of murder, and four of those convictions have been overturned. But here's what Joseph McMahon says. These issues are being replayed, unfortunately, multiple times across our country. We have a criminal justice system that is designed to address these situations. People expect their public prosecutors to advocate for the rule of law. And this is an opportunity to fulfill that promise to the people of this state. You're saying it's, it's about the credibility of the criminal justice system, whether you can bring a police officer to justice. 
we can bring a police officer to justice, and we have done that numerous times. Have you ever had a first-degree on-duty murder charge? No. The vast majority of police officers are outstanding men and women who are committed to service and valor and protecting the public. And so it does not surprise me that it's been decades since a police officer has been charged with first-degree murder in this city. It should be an extraordinarily rare occurrence. But when evidence does support the charge, the people of this state should expect their public prosecutors to prosecute those cases with the same passion and aggressiveness as we prosecute someone who is incredibly unpopular and accused of, of a violent, horrific crime. And Jen, this special prosecutor, Joseph McMahon, he says we'll see that passion and aggressiveness at the Van Dyke trial. After the break, a veteran criminal defense attorney and a former state's attorney talk about what to expect during the trial. That's just ahead on 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. Now, more than ever, facts matter. That's why the journalists at the Chicago Tribune are committed to quality journalism, relentlessly pursuing the truth and providing you with the stories that impact your community as well as your daily life. Get fact-based journalism and support the future of investigative reporting like 16 Shots by subscribing to the Chicago Tribune today. Visit chicagotribune.com slash 16 Shots for a special subscription offer just for listeners of this podcast. This is 16 Shots, the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. I'm Jen White. Trying a police officer for murder is extremely rare, so it's hard to know exactly how things will play out in the courtroom. But we want to give you a quick guide on what to watch for in the weeks ahead. We're bringing two more people into the conversation to help us do that. Dick Devine was the Cook County State's Attorney for 12 years through 2008. That's the nation's second largest local prosecutor's office with more than 900 attorneys. He's now of counsel at Chicago law firm Cozen O'Connor, where he works on cases ranging from white-collar criminal defense to zoning. Andrea Lyon worked for years in the Cook County Public Defender's Office. She's been an attorney for more than 130 homicide defendants, including several facing the death penalty. She's now a professor at Valparaiso University School of Law, and she's the author author of several books, including most recently, The Feminine Sixth, which is about women criminal defense lawyers. Also with us, WBEZ reporter Chip Mitchell, who has been covering the Van Dyke proceedings for almost three years. So let's start with the basics. And Chip, I I want you to first give us a rundown of the charges. We've had two different indictments. The initial charges, they were the ones filed in 2015, the day the video was was released. They included six counts of first-degree murder, and one count of official misconduct. Then the Cook County State's Attorney at the time, this is how Illinois refers to its district attorneys, she withdrew her office from the prosecution. So Judge Vincent Gaughan appointed a special prosecutor, Joseph McMahon, brought him in from Kane County, where he's the state's attorney. He convened a new grand jury last year, which brought a new indictment. So this was the same as the first indictment, except it includes 16 counts of aggravated battery with firearm discharge. So that makes 23 counts in total. 
Andrea, explain a little more about the first-degree murder charges. How does that work in Illinois? In Illinois, what one commonly thinks of as first-degree murder is premeditated murder. That is one form of first-degree murder in Illinois, but you can also have general intent, like knowing that what you're doing is likely to cause death or great bodily harm is enough for first-degree murder, as is in the course of a felony such as a robbery. So what's necessary for a conviction? In order to convict, they have to show that Mr. Van Dyke caused the death and that he did so knowingly and without legal justification. I mean, that's the Cliff Notes version of it. Mm -hmm. Dick, why do you think McMahon brought the 16 aggravated battery counts in addition to those murder charges? Well, some would speculate that it might be to be sure that there is a conviction if judge and or jury are not prepared to find uh, Van Dyke guilty on the murder charges. I was a little surprised they didn't have something in between there, but uh, such as the manslaughter uh, charge that involves recklessness. What's the prosecution strategy going to be in this case? Well, uh, you know, this is something that is very unusual. It's almost turned on its head with the police officer being the defendant, but it's always dangerous to predict. But certainly I think the video will be a strong part of the case. I think the presence of other police officers on the scene who for some period of time, whatever it was, did not see the necessity to confront Laquan McDonald will be part of it. And the fact that 16 shots were fired from fairly close range. And I think that they will try and put this together as something where there, there is no reasonable expectation of the need for self-defense or to prevent an escape or anything of that nature that would justify the actions on the part of Officer Van Dyke. While you can use force to prevent an escape, using deadly force requires that there is actual danger. That is going to be a very difficult sell, I would think, for the defense that it was legitimate to shoot him to prevent him from escaping. We have to remember that Laquan McDonald did have a knife with him. I mean, so this idea that preventing an escape, I and mean, part of the prevention of escape is someone who is, has a, a deadly weapon with them and could be a threat to others. So those factors could come in as well. Give us a little more insight in, into defense strategy and what you think we might see in the trial. When a defendant is alleging that he's acting in self-defense, and the question is, you know, who's the aggressor? It is legitimate to bring in evidence of the violent nature of the person that you are defending yourself against because it helps to answer that question. That's what the Supreme Court has said. The dead person. The dead person or the injured person, whether or not the defendant knows about it. Well, yes. About the about the uh, About the particular thing. So in other words, uh, Dick and I are having an argument, and Dick comes at me, and I feel I have to defend myself. Mm-hmm. The fact that Dick has a prior, no no offense, Mr. Devine, <laughs> has, has a prior <laughs> conviction, I don't have to know that, but it helps the jury to know that if he has a prior conviction for beating up someone else. <laughs> and because they have to decide, am I telling the truth when I say he came at me first? And part of how they figure that out may go to the violent character. Chip, what else do you think we need to know here? The judge has approved, so far as we know from court filings, at least six of these witnesses that will be testifying to... Laquan McDonald's alleged propensity to violence before this incident. So it's not a question of whether Mr. Van Dyke shot Mr. McDonald because he did, or how many times, or where the shots were. It's a question of whether or not his state of mind matches that for first-degree murder in Illinois or not. 
Chip, who are we likely to see take the stand in this trial? Well, in a lot of cases, even serious criminal cases, the, the witness lists come out or they're, they're not sealed. This case, Judge Gone has kept tight control of the witness list from each side. So we don't, we've never seen them all in one place. We see them discussed sometimes with their titles and professions only and not their names. But we know about a number of occurrence witnesses, as in people who say they eyeballed the shooting, that are, who are civilians. Some were in a nearby fast food place in the Burger King. Uh, a couple of different vehicles, they were actually taken into a police station and questioned for hours that night. They claim, both of them claim, that they were pressured to change their story there. There are civilian occurrence witnesses who are on the scene who were not questioned. They were told to go away, and they came forward later with accounts of the incident. And there were 10 police officers on the scene during the shooting. Now, some of them face criminal charges themselves in a separate case, a case of an alleged conspiracy to cover up for Jason Van Dyke. There are three defendants in that case. And so we could see some of them taking the Fifth Amendment. The judge has made it clear, though, that if they are provided immunity by state and federal prosecutors, that he will require them to testify. Part of the prosecution's case here is something that, as a defense lawyer, I have run into a lot, which is, you know, what's referred to sometimes as the thin blue line or, you know, the code of silence, uh, you know, uh, code of silence uh, situation. And I've certainly seen that happen a lot where a police officer does something they shouldn't do and his or her buddies back them up. And I don't know how that's going to play here because it's actually part of the prosecution case is everybody knew – this is the prosecution case now – everybody knew that what Mr. Van Dyke did was murder and tried to cover it up. And so there's that sort of trial within a trial that would be of great interest to watch. This uh, – in, in emotional limine, it was actually argued. I think that the state is not allowed to bring up anything about a cover-up. So, which doesn't mean it can't come out from a witness, but they can't elicit it, something like that. Well, it, it, they will, probably will not be able to say there was a cover-up, but if they, you put on a police officer and the police officer says, I saw him shoot him, there was no reason to shoot him, he shot him 16 times, and, you know, it's murder, and previously gave a statement in which he said it was self-defense, he could be impeached with that, and the uh, prosecution would be able to argue that there was a cover-up. That's how that would probably come in. It wouldn't come in as a separate charge. He's not charged with conspiracy. You know, more specifically, who do we expect to talk about Jason Van Dyke's state of mind that night, Chip? Well, we are going to hear a lot about this during the trial. It's going to be a key thing for a defendant who says he acted in self-defense to know what was going through his mind as he rolled up to that scene and when he made the decision to fire the shots. And we know that there is for the defense, an expert witness that they are planning on having testify. He's a psychologist from Florida named Lawrence Miller. He examined Jason Van Dyke in 2016. And we know from his writings that he is an expert on what's going through police officers' mind when they use deadly force. He talks about altered perceptions before and during the shooting. And he talks about altered memories after the shooting. Do we know if this expert has testified in other cases similar to this one? Yeah, he's testified on a lot of, a lot of criminal cases on behalf of officers. You know, it, the expert may come, but we have to remember that the standard isn't what specifically Jason Van Dyke thought. It's what the reasonable police officer 
could do under the circumstances that were faced by Officer Van Dyke. So I would imagine Judge Gawn, if he allows it, is going to limit this kind of testimony. Dick, what role do you think the video is going to play in this trial? Oh, I think the video is is extremely important. I, I don't think there's any way around that for either the prosecution or the defense. As I mentioned before, the prosecution, I think, will use it as a piece of its case. And I think the defense will attempt to show that the video is something that is given from one angle, and you have to look at this situation from the perspective of Officer Van Dyke, which is not what you see in the video. Cameras have their limitations. They don't always catch everything. They do have a perspective. That's why in movies they call it POV, point of view, right? Um, And you can tell the story from the point of view of a lot of different people and come up with a lot of different ways that you see this. That being said, the, the obvious elephant in the room is the amount of violence done over the years by police officers in the African American community. And the feeling that that this is just proof of what people have been saying. You know, I've, I've been doing criminal cases defense for a very long time. And all of this stuff about beatings and shootings and the other kinds of things that are in the news these days surprise other people. They don't surprise me because my clients have been telling me this for decades. That is part of what is going on in this case is the the divide that we see politically between, you know, make America great again, which to me is just make America white again, is and the view that some people, there's more justice for them than others. And there's a presumption in favor of them that they don't necessarily deserve. And that's going to be part of this trial, too. Uh, I don't see how it would not be. Given this context, Chip, What do we know about whether or not this trial will be a jury trial or a bench trial? Well, Jason Van Dyke has not announced whether he will waive his right to have a jury trial. And if he does waive that right, it's what we call a bench trial, and the trier of fact will be a judge. The judge will listen to the evidence and render a verdict. In Cook County and many other jurisdictions, police officers, when they're facing serious charges, uh, in the rare cases when they face serious criminal charges, they tend to choose judges to reach the verdict. So from my understanding, Jason Van Dyke has until the last juror is sworn in to waive his right to a jury trial. Is is sworn in and paneled when the first witness is testified. So Dick, tell me about this choice to um, have a judge oversee the trial rather than a jury. Why would that be a a strategy we see from defense teams in, in these types of cases? Well, I think you see it at times when the defense believes that under a reasonable or fair reading of the law, the defendant has a decent chance of being found not guilty, and they want to remove the emotion or human element. At the same time, the judge is a person too, so the idea that you completely remove the human element is is not there, but in the theory of it, you reduce the human element and bring the focus back on the law. That's not the only reason, though. At 26 in California, our criminal courts, almost all of the judges are former prosecutors. And there is a view that, that they, if there's a bias, it's in favor of the police. And so that's part of what goes into the mix here. However, uh, Judge Gahn is, 
is one of the few judges who is not a former prosecutor. In fact, he's a former public defender. I knew him when he was in the public defender's office. And if you're polite, you won't ask me how long ago that was. <laughs> and um, he has viewed pretty much, I would say, by the defense and the prosecution as just calls the balls and strikes, although he can be volatile at times. If Jason Van Dyke is found guilty, what kind of sentence could he be looking at? A minimum of 20 years actual time for first degree murder. You know, not there's no time off for good behavior. There's no anything else. So, yeah. And if he's acquitted, Dick, is this the end of things for Jason Van Dyke? Or are there other charges that could be brought against him from the federal level, for instance? In theory, the federal level could look at this and it has happened. It happened out in Los Angeles after the the riots out there. But the feds have to look at it very closely as to whether they will bring the case. So it's not certain. Obviously, you can have civil actions. But the key thing is right now, I think. You know, when you take a step back from the details of this case, what are you just going to be watching for as it plays out? I'll come to you first, Dick. Well, if it is a jury trial, I think we're all going to be watching jury selection, which would certainly be an interesting piece. But the selection and makeup of the jury is going, if it is a jury trial, is going to be uh, very important. And uh, I think the other thing I would be looking for is what police officers do testify with immunity or not and what they say, because the testimony of fellow police officers could be critical one way or another on this. Andrea, what about you? Well, I'm very interested in the jury selection as well. I think it will be very difficult to pick a jury that isn't that comes in with no opinion. Asking someone if they can be fair is kind of silly. If I ask you you can be fair, you're going to say, of course you can be fair because you think you're fair. That doesn't mean that you can be. We certainly have seen changes of venue motions granted in cases with high publicity and high prejudice before. It, it could possibly happen again. As jury selection begins and the judge decides if the trial will remain in Cook County, we'll hear more from these three about how jury selection works. And the 16 Shots reporting team will be at the courthouse. You can follow them on Twitter at Shannon underscore H, at PK Smid, and at Chip Mitchell One. We'll be releasing episodes as news breaks in the courtroom, so subscribe for analysis, explanation, and stories. Sixteen Shots is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Chicago Tribune. It was produced by James Edwards with assistance from Joe Dassault. Our reporting team includes Shannon Heffernan, Chip Mitchell, and Patrick Smith. Mike Lansu is our digital editor with help from Paula Friedrich and Gabrielle Wright. Our senior editor is Rob Wildeboer. Brendan Banaszak is our executive producer. Steve Edwards is WBEZ's chief content officer. Special thanks to the Chicago Tribune's Stacey St. Clair, Megan Crapeau, and Jason Meisner, and editors Matt O'Connor, Tracy Van Morlehem, and Angela Rosa O'Toole. And thanks to the WBEZ Newsroom, whose reporting was instrumental to this series. Additional thanks to Colin McNulty, Sophie Lalonde, Stefania Gomez, Minnesota Public Radio, and the team at the 74 Seconds podcast. You can find more about the case at wbez.org slash 16shots and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now, more than ever, facts matter. That's why the journalists at the Chicago Tribune are committed to quality journalism. 
relentlessly pursuing the truth and providing you with the stories that impact your community, as well as your daily life. Get fact-based journalism and support the future of investigative reporting, like 16 Shots, by subscribing to the Chicago Tribune today. Visit chicagotribune.com slash 16shots for a special subscription offer just for listeners of this podcast.